verse 24. Next to our Lord, the wisest man who ever lived, wrote these words. 18, Proverbs 24. A man that hath friends must show himself friendly, and there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Talking about a subject today that is attracting so much of my attention or commanding so much of my attention now in my, my life, and that is spirituality. It's a, surprisingly, it's a subject uh, we don't know enough about. <laughs> it's the dynamic of what happens in our hearts in our relationship between God and us. It's the thing that makes it possible for God to become in, inbred in us, become inside us. So what we are knit together, we become one with God. It's that essence of God is now ours, and it's shared, and uh, we have the benefit of the full benefit of that relationship. It's what God came to this earth to restore. It's what he wanted for Adam and Eve and what he wants with each one of us, and we can have much more of it than we've ever thought possible. So I probe this. I look at this. But particularly, as we think about our evangelistic series, because you know what? We're going to have not only uh, an opportunity to invite our friends and maybe even new friends that we haven't even met, but we're going to be uh, establishing relationships uh, with people that come. And so we need to know a little bit about how, how to be spiritual friends. You know, friendship is a very important quality, but spiritual friendship is even all the more. Having transforming relationships the way Jesus did. Jesus had an amazing knack of changing the lives of people just by being around them. Wouldn't you say that's true? He just had to be there and their lives had to go through some change. That's possible for all of us. And now as we think about an evangelistic campaign coming, uh, there's going to be people that are becoming searching, genuinely searching. And we need to have these kind of relationships. Spiritual friendships. A series of sermons that I have preached over uh, several months now dealt on the issue of, re of reaching community for Christ. Um, churches are having very little impact upon their communities as a rule. Ours probably has very little impact upon its community. Um, think about the power of love. Uh, I've talked about that. And the power of love shows that we are made for love. God designed us as lovers. There are parts of our being that are made to respond to love. We do respond to love. We are healed when we have love in our relationships. We can grow. We can prosper when we have love in our relationships. And we've thought about how powerful love is. It can do some amazing things with us. Love was always the central message of Jesus, and he came to save the world, to heal it. And love is the vehicle for that to happen. We cannot help but love if we have Jesus in our lives. All I have to do and all you have to do is think back maybe several years. 
And you will be able to tell that there's a difference in the love in your life between now and several years past. You grow to be better lovers the longer you know Jesus, the more you read his word. It's his spirit actually getting inside you and changing you, giving you new impulses, new desires, new thoughts, new emotions. Those are things that happen in a spiritual world. And so it was the central message of Jesus. And I asked the question, if love was what people thought of when they saw Jesus, do you remember me asking this question? What comes to their mind when they see the name Seventh-day Adventist? Is it love? Well, that's our job, to make sure that that's what comes to their mind, is love. They need to be able to know that every Seventh-day Adventist they ever met was the best lover they've ever met. <laughs> The person that really cares for them, that understands. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it is. It's really scary. It's frightening. Love can be very frightening uh, because love breaks all the rules. It's unconditional. That's absolutely foolish in a lot of people's minds, right? Most people make decisions based upon how are other people going to relate and respond to their decisions. Love doesn't take that into consideration. It just plain loves. No tit for tat, nothing like that. Just love. Friendships are fast becoming lost from our lives, even in our church. God wants and needs intimacy with us. He craves it. He longs for it. And this is, I think, an extremely important thing. Um, when I was young, because of being raised as an adopted child, there was already some built-in issues about intimacy, some scars that had taken place inside me. And it took me a long time. I mean, a long, 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 way past the diaper stage, I'll just tell you that, until I finally was able to get past some of this stuff. And to feel close to someone, intimate. Our Western society has worked against us here. It has prized something that is so contrary to what God is all about. Individualism. The me. It's stressed. Intimacy can never happen within those parameters. They've got to go. And God wants and needs intimacy with us. And we need it with one another. And I think this is one of the most uh, longed-for things that the world uh, has, is a desire for true intimacy with people. Servants don't have the same impact as friends. And what I'm suggesting is that most Seventh-day Adventists are really more comfortable being servants of God rather than friends of God. You remember we talked about this? And if you are a friend of God, you walk right into someone's heart. A servant would never dare do, do that. A servant just simply says, what are my requirements, and I'll do those things. Don't ask me for any intimacy. I don't want to do that. I don't feel capable. Um, I feel uncomfortable, matter of fact. But God doesn't want servants. Servants is fine, but he wants more. He wants intimacy, he wants friendship, which is this deep love. Making friends was the model that Jesus followed. 
All this I have preached about over several months is in preparation for today's sermon and actually sermons that are going to follow. Um, building spiritual friendships like Jesus did. Jesus built spiritual friendships. He invited people to share his journey as he shared in theirs. He didn't just go to a pulpit like I'm doing and preach. He was among them. He allowed himself to be known. He had his disciples walk with him, live with him. He shared everything with them. And, you know, that's different than what we do today. And so, he, literally living together and spiritual friends also understand the depths of each other's soul. Do you know what's going on in the soul of the person next to you? In their soul? Sometimes this is the most secret thing in a person's life. And, and you are very, very lonely as an individual if you do not feel that somebody else knows the inside of you. Not superficiality, not just your likes and dislikes, but to know your soul. Who are you down at the core? And if somebody else is privileged to open, you know, to have that intimate relationship soul to soul with another individual, then healing starts happening. And healing, what will healing do? It builds a sense of security, a sense of identity, a sense of self, so that we're not just, you know, tossed hither and yon by everything that comes. We know who we are. Jesus knew who he was. Didn't matter what other people did. He had that. He found it with the Lord. He knew the heart of the Lord. The Lord knew his heart, and it gave him strength. And that's what spiritual friendship is all about. Matthew 26, 38 talks about, <clears throat> well, let's take a look at it. Matthew 26, 38. Uh, Jesus um, is telling us here something about the agony. I think you all remember this story. 26, 38. You remember... In the, uh, the garden, he had this conversation with Peter about Peter's denial. And then in verse 38, then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. You know, I know a lot of people that would never admit to that if that was going on in their life. They would just hide it. Because they don't feel as though they can trust somebody else with that information. That's scary. Pastors, as a rule, hide who they are. Doctors do too, don't they? <laughs> you know, we hide. Professional secrecy. It's a professional presentation we make. We soon learn to do that. It's not long after we're children. We start learning to hide. And what that does is that keeps a wall up so that we don't know who we are and others don't know who we are. We do not have friendships, deep friendships, and there is no spiritual connection between people. And the church is horribly weakened because of that. You know, if it was just trying to convince us of truth, God could have done it one way. But he wanted to make spiritual friends so he came and became one of us. How very, very important. Sharing things not discussed with others. What's going on? Should we just shut that down? 
Whoa, whoa. There we go. And F5. Oh, no. Let's just go down here and down here, down here, down I didn't think you got that part of my sermon, so we're going over it again. Sharing things not discussed. Explaining mysteries. Matthew chapter 13. You know, Jesus, he took the time to explain things, to, ex to explore deep things down with his disciples. Um, answering all kinds of questions. And he allowed himself to be challenged. I got to be thinking, every time I get challenged by someone, I have a ch two choices. I can either become defensive and hurt, or I could say, this is a way for us to grow deeper. And that's exactly what happens. By all of the things that Jesus allowed himself to be challenged with and to go deeper, he helped us to see closer and more and more deep inside him. These deep personal connections around John 13 when he worked with his disciples and opened up his heart and washed their feet, different things like that, allowed the, it changed them. It changed them as people. John chapter 14, emotional support. All of the things that Jesus provided, demonstrating genuine concern for them and accountability. Luke 9, probing deeper and deeper into each other's heart. What I'm saying is, I don't see this anymore. Perhaps we never have seen it in the church. But this is what church is supposed to be. And I would like to see us go back in that direction. I do want us to look at this, this uh, 1 Corinthians 13. It's very familiar because I think it says something really important to us. Would you turn to 1 Corinthians 13? Computer, stay put. Uh, this is a man, Paul, who laid down the theological uh, structure of the church, was very skilled in theology, and this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 13. The most articulate, even beyond John, the beloved, in understanding and describing what love is all about. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, what does it say? I have become what? Sounding brass or a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. So, you know... You have the gift of tongues. But if you don't have love, that gift is worthless. If I have the gift of prophecy, a good share of the Old Testament is based upon prophecy. And do not have love. And you know all the mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith. Faith, that's pretty important, isn't it? So as to remove mountains, that would, be, that would impress anybody, wouldn't it? That's what they wanted of Jesus, right? Show us a sign. But I have not love. I am what? This is the theologian saying that the core of what spirituality is all about is what? It is love. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and deliver my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, love does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. Now why do you think love is that way? Because it values the other person more than self. That's what love does. It's the hardest struggle for us 
to really do that. And it's what the whole world is longing and waiting for. Children need it. They desperately need it. If they have it, interestingly enough, they don't become weak. They become strong. They form an identity. And they're not going to be pushed around in life because they will have had a very secure sense of self. Wow. Uh, it does not seek its own. It does not provoke. It does not take into account wrong suffered. I'm afraid I still do that. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. And I want to tell you, uh, a couple of years ago, those of you that know the name Ellen White, I decided I wanted to find out what she had to say about spirituality. She has quite a bit to say about it. So I looked up every passage on spirituality in her writings. It was shocking how many there were. <laughs> and then I had to read them through. <laughs> and then I had to organize them to try to figure out what is she really saying. And the best definition, if you were to put all together of what she says is spirituality, is right here in 1 Corinthians 13. It's all of these things. These things produce spirituality. Spirituality is the ability to be in the heart of God and the mind of God at all times. And... Um, Rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's what love does. And the whole world is longing for that. Oh, I wanted my parents to love me this way. Oh, I wanted every friend in school to love me this way. And so when I got those Valentine cards when I was younger than you, and I put them all around my room, thinking this person really loves me this way. Then a few weeks later I found out that wasn't true. But nevertheless, I longed for it. When I go back to reunions, class reunions, I'm hoping somebody there still remembers me and cares about me. We all do that. It's really important. We come to church of all places. We want to be loved here. We want to be loved by God. We want to be loved by the members of the church. Really, really important. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. And if there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. He talks about when I was a child, I speak as a child, I thought as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. He's talking, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And I want to tell you, the only way you have face to face communion with God is love. That's it. And if God is working something in your life, it's probably for the purpose of making you a better lover. And it may be pain. It may be problems. It may be relationships. It may be whatever it may be. But his agenda, you can count on it, is to make you more Christ-like lover like Jesus did. Have the same affections and feelings and attitudes in your heart as, as in Jesus. And when you are there, suddenly you are no longer a child. Suddenly you are mature. You have legs to stand on. And people see the difference. And they say, there's something there. There is something there. And we will be known just as I also am fully known. There abide faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these 
The theologian Paul says is what? Love. Oh, that stayed put. Good machine. Honesty is another requirement of spiritual friendships. It requires that we let go of any secrets. You cannot be a friend, a spiritual friend, with fog, with opaqueness. You've got to be transparent and you've got to be very, very clear. The earlier you learn to do this, the better you are. This is the stuff that produces great joy and inner peace and in making it possible for us to relax when we have this intimacy, to be known even as we are known. Two friends experience each other as part of themselves. It's like, you know, like Paul was saying, you known even as you are known, you don't stop and another person begins, you kind of merge. That's what happens in this intimacy. That's what love does. This, what's in the heart of God is us. And soon that is in our heart as well. And we begin to cherish and feel as God feels. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, a friend is a person with whom I can think aloud. Much more than that, by the way. Like music. When we are a spiritual friend, we are accompaniment to that person. We play not the um, basic melody, but the support. Supporting melody in that person's life and it allows them to go to thrive when that parents do that with children wow what a gift that is for the child okay <clears throat> we live to bless each other life is not about self it is about who we care for unbelievable growth can happen and fulfillment knowing God's desire and plan becoming a great agent for the Holy Spirit and fulfilling that plan how many of you are doing that now? How many of you know that you are God's agent in another person's life to transform that person? And that God is giving you the gifts that you need to do that. That this other person's life is in your hands and God the potter is using your hands to form that other person. That is amazing. True friends will not accept self-deceptions. They will be gentle. They will be firm, but they will confront. And protecting and advancing at great personal cost to themselves, this is what mentoring is all about. They do this for others. And be aware of weaknesses that do not diminish respect, affection, or admiration. This is our sacred duty. Is what Jesus did with his disciples. There's also the factor of loyalty. Now, as you think about these qualities, remember, in a few weeks, God's going to bring people into our midst. And this is what they're looking for. They're not coming just to find doctrine. They're coming to find something much more difficult to find in this world than that. And that means you have to open up your heart. You have to give of yourself. You have to be available. You have to be loyal. Spoken and unspoken commitments, a preservation of confidentiality, not criticisms between each other, courteous and respectful. All of these elements of spiritual friendship is what God will use to bring new people into our family and into our lives. 
Spiritual friendships are extremely rare. I'm going to tell you a story now. Do you have spiritual friendships? If you don't, you're not growing. Did you hear that? If you don't have spiritual friends that you're nurturing, you're God's hands, God is giving you insights as to how to help that person, God is using you, you're critical in the process, if he's not changing you and adapting you for the sake of that other person, then you're not growing. You're just not growing. This is how we grow. But they're extremely rare today. They demand so much from us. They demand patience, thick skin and resilience, skill, time, connection to God. Extremely get difficult to learn how to become a spiritual friend. Over the years, God has called me to be a spiritual friend of various different people. And I could tell you, without a doubt, it's a very painful and consuming process. Lives can be changed, and that's what's so wonderful, is when you see a life changed. But the price could be pretty steep in bringing that about. But we don't grow unless we pay that price. And if we don't grow, don't be so assured of your salvation. That's at stake. Really important. All of these uh, things that they demand, patience and resilience and thick skin and skill and time and connection to God, are things that the church needs to help bring about, but they're the same things that we have to learn. We must learn. Um, because they are so hard, we resort to all kinds of substitutes. And you can find Christians all around the world that busy themselves doing good things and not becoming spiritual friends. God created all kinds of good things on this planet and gave them away. He did all kinds of good gifts every day. But if he didn't come down and become spiritual friends with us, there would be no salvation. Doing good things do not change lives. It's becoming spiritual friends. There's no end to doing good things. Now, Seventh-day Adventists, we have evangelistic campaigns. We talk about prophecy. What did the Bible just say about prophecy? We have health. Is that as important as love? We have right now a huge program going on, sponsored by the North American Division, on creation versus evolution. Great program. I've seen wonderful things about it. Is that as important as love and as essential as love? Why is it the Seventh-day Adventist Church does not do things about love in a world that's just absolutely lost about this topic? Why don't they do that? Uh, we talk about doctrines. Well, you already know about that. Is that the way Jesus worked? What did he spend the most time demonstrating spiritual friendship through love? Well, there's a whole bunch of new discoveries that have been taking place that are going to support what I've said. Maybe you're aware of them, maybe you're not. Sir Alistair Hardy, a great biologist, distinguished ocean biologist, developed a method of monitoring plankton. They drag these things behind ships, and they've got absolutely hundreds of thousands of different kinds of plankton. It enables them to be able to tell this, the, the condition of our oceans. 
But that wasn't enough for him. He also liked to be a painter. But what I'm going to talk to you about, Sir Alistair Hardy, is his lifelong fascination in transcendental experiences, experiences with the other outside beyond us, the spiritual experiences. He argued that biology could help us understand man's emotional and spiritual behavior. Spiritual awareness appeared to be universal, he thought, of all humans, and we should be much better informed about it. That's what he believed. Western countries had very little information about the private spiritual and religious experiences of ordinary people. So this distinguished biologist set out to try to understand the nature of spirituality in his home country, in England. Science must recognize, he said, that people do have a spiritual side. That's quite a step for science, you know. But anyway, he did that, and he is Sir Alistair Hardy, very distinguished man. In 19, and by the way, is it, maybe, uh, Dean, you know this, the director of the National Institutes of Health, I believe he is a Christian and makes no bones about it. I don't remember his name right now. Very distinguished man. There are some scientists that do understand spiritual things. In 1968, he established the Religious Experience Research Unit at Oxford University. Okay, so all of that. But let me tell you what he found. He began collecting data. And so in religious magazines, he asked people to share their spiritual experiences. And pretty soon, 3,000 letters came in, and he began to classify them. He was a biologist. He's going to classify right? Less than 8% were of the kind that might be expected. Spiritual experiences, which meant speaking in tongues, extrasensory perception, hearing voices, contact with the dead, out-of-body experiences, you see the list. Less than 8% had to do with that. The bulk, overwhelming bulk of spiritual experiences that people were having in this survey were on the list on the right. A sense of ecstasy, a sense of being guided, of inspiration, of prayers answered, peace, joy, clarity, certainty. These were so strong that the people that were reporting them said, this is bigger than me, it's got to be God involved. You got it? So he is starting to investigate that. It really interested him. Now, most Adventists are afraid of spirituality because of the things in the left column. But where people are at, it's basically in the right column. Do you follow that? All right, let's continue. His research debunked the commonly held notion that spiritual experiences were the result of intense prayer or penance. In other words, our hard spiritual work to get us ready to receive a spiritual experience. We needed to do the hard work, then we would be rewarded with experience. He debunked that idea. That's not what happens. These people that were reporting an experience with God, none of this was associated with hard spiritual work <laughs> to get there. It wasn't a fruit of work. That's interesting, isn't it? Their responses indicated spiritual experiences were happening to Ordinary people, not just religious people. Ordinary people, by and large, that were not coming to church. Remember he did his work in England? How much of England attends church? One of the smallest ratios in the world. 
okay? And also, these spiritual experiences were happening to people who were not seeking them. And so he raised the question, was this true across the entire population? Had he discovered something that was an anomaly, or was it true everywhere? He invited David Hay, a zoologist, another scientist from a total different area, in Nottingham University to join him in his research. In 1976, the first national survey of spiritual experience in Britain was undertaken. They asked the question, have you ever been aware of or influenced by a presence or power, whether you call it God or not, which is different from your everyday self? That's a pretty good question, isn't it? Okay? The responses, almost three times more non-church attendees reported powerful spiritual experiences than church attendees. Did you see that? Did you get that? We are handicapped. If you come to church regularly, you're handicapped in having a spiritual experience. That's pretty astounding. Something to think about. Well, was that really the case? Well, other studies were conducted in 1985. A Gallup poll reported very similar results. Door-to-door -door personal random follow-ups in the home they conducted next. They sat down and they talked to people, sometimes for quite a while, with their 27-page questionnaire. And people started because it was okay, acceptable to talk about what was normally not acceptable to talk to anybody about to these surveyors. And they found out that 62% described in detail their spiritual experiences. 62%. That's huge. In other words, what we're seeing take place is there is a spirituality out in the world that church people know nothing of and probably are experiencing very little of. We think that since we're here, they're lost and we're saved. Maybe not so. You know, they, we're not, we're not, they're having something different than we're experiencing. Hay discovered that, given the right questions and an empathetic ear, ordinary people will disclose spiritual experiences of an incredibly intimate nature. The majority of spiritual experiences occurred when the respondents were in either completely alone or alone in a non-religious public setting. Almost three-quarters said long-term outcome was that their spiritual experience changed their attitude toward life to some extent. These things change people. Nearly a quarter identified themselves as being either agnostic, atheist, or don't knows. So while we think God is having nothing to do with them, maybe God is talking to them. Maybe he is reaching them. Women, more fundamental Christians, more affluent people, more educated people, we're more likely to have a spiritual encounter. Think about that. Men are the leaders generally in church. Whoa. <laughs> Think about that. 44% of regular or occasional church attendance had never been influenced by a presence or power, whether they called it God or not. 44%. Now that's something. Barna famous Christian research group in 1998 revealed that one-third of adults who regularly attend church services have never experienced God's presence at any time in their life. A third. You know this. The Bible tells us about it. 
Abraham was called of God. Abraham gave himself to that relationship. Abraham was transformed by that relationship. Abraham was made into the image of God, became God's friend because of that. It is what Jesus did all throughout history. It must never perish. Abraham, thy friend forever, and the disciples became God's friends. It determines if Christianity is powerful or weak. The whole world longs to be well-grounded, to know God, to know themselves, to understand life, to know how to love, to know how to live, and to feel fulfilled. And that will not happen through doctrine. That will only happen by love in a spiritual friendship. It's the only thing that can happen. Now why is it that the church has never been trained how to do this? How to develop that spiritual close friendship. To somehow be in that relationship with God ourselves and then just allow that relationship to go right into the person we're working with. We become a conduit for that to happen. I'm so happy that after years and years of struggle, my wife and I have finally gotten there. We are spiritual friends. It took a lot of hard times to get there. But she knows my heart. I know her heart. We pray for the things in each other's lives in a very special way. Ellen White made some interesting, powerful statements. This is what she says. Let's see here. It is the spiritual, it is the spirituality of the children of God that is their glory in God's eyes. This is the distinguishing mark that separates them from the world. What is it? Say it. What is it? Have you been taught how to be spiritual? No one's taught me. She said, I urge our people to make their life work to seek spirituality. We think that means something other than what it really is saying. Spirituality is at the core becoming one with God, to experiencing God in our lives. I long for deeper spirituality, she said, for more vigor in the Christian life. I want to be lifted above all earthiness in a pure, holier atmosphere. God played with this woman's heart as a potter does with clay. She became a powerful woman. When you were in her presence, you knew that the God's spirit was there changed people. The reason that the Lord does not manifest his power more decidedly is because there is so little spirituality among those who claim to believe the truth. How horrible. Everywhere through the churches of Christendom, she says, there is a dearth of spirituality, a lack of vital. We are spiritual beings. In Romans chapter 8, 5 to 7, they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. How in the world do we expect ever to understand the mind of God unless God in his own way takes us over in almost in a different kind of an experience and we capture it through the vehicle of the Holy Spirit inspiring us. There's no way that our hearts and our minds are capable of grasping that without that kind of help. 
There's no way that we could ever learn to love like God loves or to keep any one of the commandments the way they should be kept if the Holy Spirit doesn't come in. Oh, I think I can master it, but when the Holy Spirit comes in, you know what happens? I find out how miserable a failure I am. We need God's Spirit. It will make us aware of ourselves, make us aware of the others that we care about. It will give us love. It will give us the skills to do all the things that are necessary. This is a spiritual work, and we must become spiritual in order to see it happen. Spiritual friendship. That's what is needed today. Well, Father, we have thought a lot about what it means to be spiritual friends and what it means to be a lover, the price that it commands, and the great opportunity that it offers to really have a long, eternal effect upon the people in our lives. People that are desperately in need of that kind of friendship. And I pray that your Holy Spirit has done what we've wanted it to do, to carry this message right to our heart and help us to know how to apply it in our lives. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what you have told us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.